Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. In considering the vastness of mankind since the beginning of time, no one can possibly believe that his generation or his personal self is more important than any other period or person since the beginning of humanity's existence. No one person or group of people can live happily without the help of others. Regardless of the differences of individual purpose, we are dependent upon each other. What I have stated so far is the philosophy that propels me, and without these things I can see no reason for tomorrow. This is Frank Sinatra. The voice you just heard is that of an orchestra leader, the most significant figure of the modern jazz age, Stan Kenton. In previous weeks, you've heard the stories of Gertrude Lawrence, Eddie Arnold, Carl Sandburg, and Ernest Hemingway. Tonight, transcribed, it's Stan Kenton, musician, pianist, composer, and leader in modern American jazz. His fight to popularize modern jazz won him a legion of followers, but this was not an easy road. You may not feel you like his kind of big band jazz, modern music, or progressive jazz. Have your choice in what you call it, but listen, and listen carefully. Did you know that this is Kenton? flatly refuse to accept this entitled soliloquy as jazz. Kenton insists it is the jazz of the era. Perhaps more classical in nature, but of the jazz conception because it is played by jazz musicians. Another example, solitaire. time, there are men whose special role it is to give expression to the spirit of their day. They become its symbols, each in his own field of art. Stan Kenton is such an individual, the symbol of a vibrant world that finds its voice today in jazz. His story is, in many ways, the story of modern jazz, and this musical era is his. There are many types and different likes and dislikes in music, and there are many different segments and sections of jazz music. There are those that prefer Dixieland music and ragtime, and there are those who said nothing can happen better for jazz after swing music. Then there are those that came along in recent years, the beboppers and the progressive fans, until today the modern end of the development of jazz is simply called modern music or modern jazz. It's a rather mystifying thing because somehow no one is ever able to describe it or give a justification for the music. It intrigues us. All we know 
is there's a wonderful feeling and a lot of excitement when five trumpets line up with five trombones, five saxophones in a rhythm section, and everything starts to swing. Orchestra, Kenton, the title, Swing House. Jazz musicians have developed a great deal since the old jazz started 60 or 70 years ago in the South. The first crude forms were very genuine and emotional content, had great character. And they had developed throughout the years in a technical way. Musicians today play great fluent phrases where before it was short, stammering things. But nevertheless, the sincerity was still there and the character equal. Kenton has said... That is one of the worries today, where musicians are so held down with creating things technically that sometimes they have to be on guard for sincerity. The emotional content must be genuine, or they have created nothing. Jazz music started in New Orleans and then crept up the river into Chicago. And from there, it spread all over the United States, and it kept spreading. Today, jazz music is internationally accepted and respected. 
Kenton has changed public taste in jazz. Grueling, ceaseless work has been the price of his success. He often goes without sleep while on tour. He'll do two concerts a day, sit for interviews, rehearse, travel, compose, and live music for 48 and often 72 hours before admitting the need for rest. People who only a few years ago found his music strange and noisy are in his audience today. Now, from his new recorded work, The Kenton Era, he speaks of the development of his music. You know, in a comparative manner, the growth of the Kenton Orchestra has been in a small way a representative pattern in a certain period in the progress of jazz. And in the album of music to follow, you may see this pattern in detail as you hear the documentary evidence of all of our struggles to grow from then until now. With us, as I reminisce about the beginnings, there was an experimental rehearsal with 11 musicians in Los Angeles in, in 1940. I believed in the musicians I had called, and they reflected enough positive reaction to the music I had written to, to urge me further. At the top, there were bands like Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Artie Shaw, the Lunsford Band, and, of course, uh, Duke Ellington. In our first public appearances in 1941, our jazz, like that of the big names, was fitted into dance music. You know, in that era, people stood and listened, or they danced, because none of the jazz at that time was too complex rhythmically for dance music. It was the beginning of the jitterbugs, and they, as well as most of the dancers, they liked to beat. So at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Balboa Beach, California, with men like Jack Ordine, Red Doris, Chico Alvarez, and Howard Rumsey, we played a music that sounded like this. There were a lot of sharp accented offbeats. Many improvised solos and most introductions, endings, and interludes were like powerful brass fanfares. I guess we played at top pitch all the time because, well, we were young and I am sure we wanted to be noticed. Three years followed this with not much progress musically or otherwise. We, like all other young jazz orchestras, were either too loud, too fast, uh, too slow, or... Worse yet, what we were playing sounded like nonsense because there were no popular songs and we were very short on hit parade material. We made many trips from the Palladium in Hollywood to the Meadowbrook in Jersey, the Panther Room in Chicago, and stops in between. We had our share of cancellations, criticisms, and I guess we had our average amount of abuse, but as I look back on it now, I realize that what we were having was actually just considered normal growing pains. During this period, we tried many types of music and experimented continually in an effort to appease the ballroom men, the hotel operators, agents, radio networks, our recording company, and, of course, the music publishers. Forgetting about the jazz format for the moment, we tried to create a sweet commercial style. We had Gene Howard singing the ballad. When you're near, there's such an air of spring. We had Anita Day doing the rhythm tunes. And I guess the few contributions we made to jazz during that period, well, maybe the most important was Eager Beaver. Somehow, 
out of all the confusion, I realized that two important developments had taken place. First, though we had drifted far from our course and struggled continually for simple survival, we had weathered the heaviest storm, that of getting started. And second, our attempts at musical appeasement would never be the answer. Though the band was now past the dangers of infancy, I knew we should never go further unless we returned to our original purpose, jazz. We relieved the library of every gimmick experiment and started blowing again with the same conscientiousness that we had in the beginning. And as if by magic, interest in the music, instead of hanging apathetically, began to soar. September 1945 found us at the Cafe Rouge in the Hotel Pennsylvania, New York. The band had grown in personnel. Now we had four trumpets instead of three, and of course we had four trombones instead of two. Once again, we were working with brass and the great excitement that comes from brass. You know, the wonderful Woody Herman band at that time had just been accepted by the people playing our most exciting jazz, thereby rekindling our belief and enthusiasm in our own conception of music. So, again, with men like Eddie Safransky, Kay Winding, Buddy Childers, Vito Musso, Boots Mazzulli, and, of course, June Christie, we contributed artistry jumps... and then came our first album, Artistry and Rhythm. In a year or so, we started breaking attendance records and our record sales became big. This continued until the spring of 1947 when, gratified by the public's enthusiasm but utterly exhausted, we dissolved the band for a six-month's rest. By now, the music of Artistry and Rhythm was firmly established. I began to realize the vast possibilities of the sound of the jazz musician. With Kay Winding's trombone, for instance, we found that we could create great character even without the presence of a rhythm section setting a beat. A good example was the sound created on Gene Rowland's Ain't No Misery in Me. This, to me, opened a new field. We now had complete freedom with the jazz emotion. We could write our music in any movement because besides setting it to a swing beat, we had the advantages of gaining contrast and freshness even without tempo. So in 1947, with the addition of Shelley Mann, Lorendo Almeida, Milt Bernhardt, Ray Wetzel, Jack Costanza, George Weidler, and of course Bob Cooper, our music that was now called progressive jazz managed to succeed in our first concert tour and our first album of the music. There was Rugolo's Impressionism. The concerto to end all concertos. The Cuban influence became prevalent in Cuban carnival and machito. Then there was Elegy for Alto and, of course, many others. 
The enthusiasm for progressive jazz renewed our faith in the necessity to keep moving forward with, with our music. Concerts were strained financially and required periodic returns to hotels and ballrooms to help support them. But the interest of our listeners was unmistakable, and our own integrity demanded that this interest be justified and encouraged. Believing in the importance of jazz as an expression of the American people, we inaugurated a series of concerts in 1950 known as Innovations in Modern Music. With every conceivable advantage offered by 40 musicians, including strings, horns, and woodwinds, our music took on almost a classical aspect. While it was still jazz, we brought in the formerly educated creative talents of such men as Franklin Marks, Johnny Richards, Bob Grettinger, and of course again Pete Rugolo, and presented to the serious jazz listener such widely varied compositions as Trajectories, Soliloquy, Incident in Jazz, and of course Mirage. Honestly, ignore the fact that public acceptance of the more modern jazz expressions is still, to a large degree, a limited one. Our music, as well as the rest of modern jazz, has moved further and further away from popular music. And because it has become more complex, it has lost favor with some. So, to encourage the development of the music itself and the tastes of our audience for the music, we now create, orchestrate, and perform three distinct idioms. The lighter, more popular type of music... Modern jazz, which is in a constant state of growth. And the very advanced music that is highly experimental. Even in the popular idiom, we are constantly seeking new and fresh means of expressing this music which has such universal appeal. To cease to do so would be to cease to grow, and I believe sincerely that our organization lives only by growth and by development. It is too early yet to attempt to ascertain whether our efforts over the years have contributed to the development of the world's music. I feel it is probably enough to know that in the most exciting period music has ever known, we are at least a part of one ingredient necessary to its technical and emotional growth, this being jazz. The story in brief of a musician and his orchestra. The man, Stan Kenton. This is Frank Sinatra, and this program is called The Kenton Era. Born in Wichita, Kansas, on February 19, 1912, Stan Kenton lived briefly in Colorado and was raised on the West Coast. Stan's mother, a piano teacher, began early to give him lessons. But it was only after testing trumpet, sax, and banjo that he returned to piano, the instrument of a success. After graduation from school... 
The ensuing Depression years found him staging the fight for survival. He played piano in clubs and worked part-time with name and local bands from Bakersfield to San Diego. He spent many, many sleepless nights creating the completely different style that was later to become known as artistry and rhythm. He soon married, found movie studio and radio work, and eventually became assistant musical director and pianist arranger at Earl Carroll's in Hollywood. Throughout those lean 1930s, his dream was an orchestra of his own. This was realized when Kenton, on Memorial Day 1941, opened at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Balboa, California. Then as now, his theme, Artistry and Rhythm, 1941 Vintage. Well, it's the Balboa bandwagon with Stanley Kenton's Artistry and Rhythm. felt a personalized sympathy toward jazz. Even in this small band, he believed he could make a serious musical contribution. Even within the scope of the popular song, he felt he could create a kind of depth which would be more complete than what had been done before. This was the beginning of his own music. It was a proud leader in his orchestra. The young Kenton band at Balboa in 1941 was an immediate success. Whatever the criticism, it was tempered by one fact. The Kenton band interested people. The youngsters turned out. Business was healthy. Oh, yes, in those days, he sang, too. Now I went down to St. James in And I found my baby there. She was stretched out on a cold, cold white table. So sweet, so cold. After his engagement at Balboa, one night is followed. Prospects were impressive. Finances were low. What he thought was a string of one-nighters turned out to be for weekends only. Then a fortunate break. A booking at the famous Palladium in Hollywood. crowds jammed the Palladium. Variety in the billboard said, an attraction has been on the West Coast. Next stop, New York, an eight-week engagement at Roseland, the famous Dimer Dance Hall. The critics, operators, dancers all said, no. Happy music and unusual presentation, a success in California, had failed in New York. 
pleasing everyone in music was difficult. He tried supplementing pop and standard tunes to the library. He tried to tone the band down, tried to compromise. Slowly there was success, but he decided to stand or fall on his original convictions. Jazz as he heard it and felt it. Critical acceptance improved gradually. In four years, Kenton had become famous. The pressure of the times and of success itself kept him moving. Broadcasts, rehearsals, auditions, and shows for the armed forces, constant changes in personnel. Success at the Paramount Theater in New York. By 1946, the band was at its height. The annual polls named Artistry and Rhythm the most popular music of the year. But the band and Stan were weary. Five long years of constant hard work. Stan announced he was disbanding. The artistry and rhythm era ended. After months of rest, recuperation, and thought, he grew lonesome to hear the sound again, the pulse of the band. It had to continue. Being a concert attraction fascinated him. If this could be successful now, Stan hoped in the future to develop the idea with a larger orchestra. The concert experiment was tried at his original location of success, the Rendezvous Ballroom in Balboa. A new era had begun. Success again. And he entitled it Progressive Jazz. Stan ever did prove more successful. Slotted along with regular ballroom bookings with a concert. From the Academy of Music in Philadelphia to Carnegie Hall in New York, the public now accepted the new effort. Variety magazine said, Kenton's success is based on his constant striving for new paths in music and the band's excellent understanding of it. Playing concerts and dance engagements, the band worked its way west. Kenton's progressive jazz with vocalist June Christie drew 15,000 people in the famous Hollywood Bowl. All the hopes and effort that had gone into his music were, to him, justified by this acceptance. On dance dates, the enthusiastic audiences asked and listened to both dance and the progressive side of the music. Fifteen months of one-nighters and concerts from coast to coast. The men were tired. Physically and emotionally, Kenton had driven himself day after day to the point of exhaustion. For the moment, he had lived enough music. He needed rest. Time to reevaluate his beliefs. When he ended the last progressive concert, the Kenton organization was, according to the theatrical trades, the biggest box office aggregation in the country. Kenton's progressive jazz era, though, had ended. You are listening to The Kenton Era. Our narrator, Frank Sinatra. This special NBC broadcast will resume transcribed after a 10-second pause for station identification.
This is the Kenton Era. Our host and narrator, Frank Sinatra. By June 1949, six months later, Kenton was healthier than he had been in years and again had the urge to return to music and the band. But this time it would be different. A big orchestra and only a concert tour. The new music had to speak of textures, tempos, and contrasts of the age. Forty musicians would create this new sound, which he called innovations. Rehearsal seemed endless. All the material was new and unfamiliar to the entire orchestra. Not even in the early days before the very first engagement of Balboa was Stan fixed with the uncertainty which faced him now. Whether his new music was capable of moving an audience, he no longer knew. It was at the Los Angeles Philharmonic Auditorium the first test was held. Innovations in modern music. Kenton's innovations was a success, and for two years he moved his 40-piece orchestra around the country. The example just heard is called Salute, the composer Pete Rugolo. At a concert, Kenton would announce, The innovations you are about to hear are but a beginning. Whether our music survives is of no importance. But it is, I think, vital that Americans, through their spirit and eternal quest for the undiscovered, find 
and cultivate a manner of music which best reflect our proud country, its people, its character, and the relentless forwardism which is our very own. Kenton has always felt that music is food for the emotions and that greater demands are being made of it continuously because we are reaching deeper into our inner selves. As time moves on, he feels the emotional hunger can only be satisfied by music and constantly says more. He has always wanted to be a part of this creative need in satisfying the desire for fresh composition. Whenever an audience is subjected to original new music, they immediately start mustering their defenses. After many years of experimentation, Kenton realized how important it was to present the right music at the right time. All music is different in degrees. Some of it's very demanding of your attention and your emotions, and others can be taken lightly. Some people like music to be sentimental. Others like music to have a nostalgic value, to make them think of things gone by. Then there are the others that are realists, and they demand music that is stark and says a great deal, is compelling and dynamic and demands undivided attention because it will not allow you to talk or allow your mind to drift away. Take yourself, for example. Many times you want music only to help you relax, just atmosphere. And other times when the conversation is finished, you want to hear music that says something, listening music. Kenton, remember, is known for three types of music. First, the popular and dance music, then progressive or modern jazz, which is the experimental music, and third, music of the more advanced form. About the last, some like it and are moved by it, while others may consider it a lot of noise. Kenton says, only time will tell. His Capitol Records have always sold well, and on this subject he said, It's a wonderful thing to make a phonograph record and gain the affection of hundreds of thousands of people, people who have purchased the record and play it time and time again. It does many things for an artist. It broadens his popularity, it raises his grosses, and, so to speak, it does great things for his personal appearances. It's a brilliant thing, hit record. We try to get a clever piece of material. We say, this is fresh. It's never been done before. This is the tempo it should be. This makes it a happy thing. And, well, the lyrics are real cute. We get a good phonograph record after trying it out by performing it in front of the public and gaining from their reaction at that time. And we finally say we believe we have it and we've got it recorded. But you know something? Nothing. What a baffling thing, the music business. Like show business, it's based upon public affection. We all are working for their favor, and without their favor, we cannot exist. You know, insecurity in this field is something worse than a green-eyed monster. You can have seven successful records, and the eighth one will miss. Already you become afraid. Like on the road, you have three months of successful one-nighters. All of a sudden, we'll say the shingle is hung out some night, and... It says, Stan Kentley's orchestra, and no one comes. Panic immediately. What happened? What did we do last year when we played here? Did they like it? Is this the first time? Are the records heard around here? Maybe this reign of popularity, so to speak, that we've enjoyed has exhausted itself. And this panic will prevail until another successful date comes along to start bolstering this thing that we call ego again. What a wonderful business, the music business. Kenton's innovations era ended late in 1951. He continued searching for fresh new material and maintained an orchestra of 20 men. The dawn brought a new outlook on jazz, Kenton's jazz, and so was born the new contemporary era. (laughs) 
NBC in June 1952 started broadcasting the Kenton Orchestra on a regular weekly basis, following the band on tour from coast to coast of Canada. A controversial figure in music, Kenton was considered to be an ex-quantity in broadcast appeal because, well, of his consistent refusal to compromise with popular tastes. Much interest was generated when NBC offered airtime to this man who said his business can be dangerous. Shortly after the premiere program from Kitchener, Ontario, a flood of cards and letters began. Although some expressed gratitude, they were humorous or professionally critical. What amazed program analysts was that no mail received in New York had been disparaging. Reviews were good. Billboard said, It added up to a bright musical half hour that ought to make a lot of new fans for the band. Variety put it, Kenton's progressive style is now a well-established idiom with a considerable following. This is an orchestra, a group of musicians gathered together because of a belief in a particular music. Like all orchestras, this organization is unique in that the artistic ideal is far more important than personal differences. These musicians, for this instance, came from all corners of America. The character of the music to follow is the result of their understanding and adjustment to each other. Some of this music is written... Some is improvised. There are times when a musician will express his individuality and other moments when he will melt with the rest to create an organized sound. This is a cross-section view of this orchestra. For four consecutive years, Kenton was named winner of Downbeat Magazine's popularity poll as leader of the nation's number one orchestra. When Charlie M.G., Hollywood editor of the Downbeat on NBC, presented Kenton with the fourth award in 1953, he said... Downbeat special award this year goes to a man who has, beyond any shadow of a doubt, given a great something to the popular music world. He has won this same award for three successive years, and this year marks his fourth win, the winner of the Best Dance Band Award of 1952, voted for by an almost overwhelming majority, goes to none other than Stan Kenton. When broadcasting, playing concerts, or dance dates, Kenton always credits his musicians. Their names are always mentioned. Who wrote or who arranged the composition and who plays solo. His men never go unnoticed. He also adds touches of humor and is rarely lost for words. His shows are all ad-libbed. Listen to him at a broadcast from the Blue Note in Chicago. You know, like all orchestras and all combinations that are part of this music business, we all have theme songs. And in most cases, a theme song is played pretty much in the same manner each time, but ours is an exception. We found that our theme, the one called Artistry and Rhythm, will do very well as a foxtrot. It, sometimes if we're stuck for a rumba, it makes an excellent rumba. We found that it works fine as a samba, and recently we discovered that it's a very good march. So one of these days in your hometown, if you're watching a parade and the Elks come by playing artistry and rhythm, you'll know that they received our new arrangement here. And from Vancouver, British Columbia. We're rehearsing applause here in, in Vancouver, B.C., everybody. Let's take it on the downbeat again. Now watch a clean cutoff this time, please. Some of you aren't watching. Once more. Now a short staccato note. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have played concerts all over America and most of Canada. I find that the audience here in Vancouver, British Columbia, is the most brilliant. One in three, four, please. Uh, 
few bebop sounds there. Let's clean it up. Here he is at Missoula, Montana. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. You must watch those cutoffs. <laughs> Incidentally, speaking of cutoffs, Stan Levy, may I hear the end of that Tiffany roll? Most interesting. Now you ended it? Uh-huh. Uh, leave it out. Don't do it, thank you. Now, from the Sampson Air Force Base, Geneva, New York. Before we uh, get into the evening any further, we have uh, some listening music to play. Then we have some dance music to play later on, too. And as I tell you people here in the auditorium, we have dance music that is absolutely guaranteed. I can dance to it myself, and it's quite an incredible thing. From the Civic Opera House in Chicago. We are doing this evening's concert in miniature from backstage at the Opera House with the asbestos down. We've done this under many different forms of circumstances before. We've played without a piano. We've played when the band was so crammed together that actually it looked like a, a sardine can with the lid off, and we've played outdoors, and this evening again will be another interesting experiment. The fame Kenton and his musicians achieved throughout the years was international, and so in August 1953, a European tour was arranged. His biggest worry was, would they like the orchestra over there? Was it a success? Here's a feeling from England. This is Romney Wheeler. Unfortunately, Stan Kenton's orchestra couldn't play in England because of American and British Union restrictions that prevent American bands playing in England. But not to be outdone, Stan's British friends and enthusiasts went by boat and by plane to hear him play in Dublin. There must have been over 5,000 of them at the Theatre Royal in Dublin. The orchestra was a fiery unit charged with enthusiasm. The atmosphere in the theater was electric. September 20th, 1953 is a day to be remembered for the Kenton fans in Britain. They're waiting for his return. And what about Paris? This is Frank Burkholzer in Paris. In Paris, progressive United States jazzmen meet with mixed reactions from the uninhibited French. They boo at the drop of a hat and even read newspapers during a jazz concert when they're not satisfied. French fans of Dixieland make a practice of invading modern jazz concerts just to cause trouble by yelling or razzing to show their dissatisfaction. Here in Paris, when the curtain rose for Stan Kenton and his orchestra, a friendly applause swept through the hall. After the program of Kenton favorites, the crowd called Beats, Beats, which means encore. One of the orchestra's members received a standing shouting ovation for his work. In his curtain speech, Kenton said, You have been very wonderful. I was most concerned. Paris accepted enthusiastically Kenton and his music. In Germany, the story was this. In six days, Kenton and company played many concerts from Stuttgart to Cologne. At the Sportspalast in Berlin, the hall in which Herr Goebbels had denounced American jazz ten years before, 15,000 young Germans, many of them from East Germany, turned out for the Kenton concert. In one town, they broke down a wall, and as the police carried one of the German kids out, he yelled, I haven't seen crowds like this since Hitler. European jazz lovers are much more serious about jazz than Americans. 
in almost every German city where the orchestra played, admirers rioted for autographs. It was American music. It was Stan Kenton. In six weeks, Kenton had played Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Holland, Belgium, France, Italy, Switzerland, and Ireland, all to packed halls of listeners. He said they had riots and near riots in almost every place they played. When we get home, he said, they're just not going to believe it. But it was true, all true. Kenton found the tour the most rewarding experience of his career. His music was, he discovered, being played for ballet and modern dance groups. The Saddler's Wells Company was experimentally choreographing some of the early originals. In France and Italy, Kenton saw art films built around his music. The serious interest the press took in his concerts and the space devoted to the reviews indicated how wide an audience the music really had. Returning to America, he looked back at the tour, back through his years in music, and saw how his own aspirations for jazz had, in this era, come to be realized. Not that he stood alone. There were many before him, composers, arrangers, personalities who were the spokesmen for jazz. And they were the great artists who performed the music. They were jazz itself. It was difficult for him to assess his own contribution. He still didn't know how or why it happened, but he had become a focal personality in the new jazz movement. In 1954, Kenton was elected to the Music Hall of Fame, an honor established by Downbeat Magazine for those who had contributed the most to modern American music in the 20th century. Only two others, Louis Armstrong and Glenn Miller, had been previously elected. On a glance at Kenton's future, here he is with his own word of summation. Well, there you have it, a representative record of our music over more than a decade of growth and development. A record of hard work and sometimes of discouragement and failure. But on the whole, we've had perhaps more than our share of success. And I personally am deeply grateful for the many times I've known the excitement of bringing to enthusiastic audiences new music in which I sincerely believe. Maintaining an orchestra is a continuing experiment, a gamble involving many people. A leader cannot survive without the inspiration and encouragement of those around him. His musicians must be in accord with his ideals, for no orchestra can give its best if its members do not believe in the music. On his part, the leader must have faith in the concepts of his men. He must also respect and encourage the efforts of his colleagues, his manager, his promoter, his agent, his recording company, so that their important contributions can be made effective. Our organization, the Kenton Band, has been most fortunate over the years in its complex personal, creative, and business relationships. In the early days, especially, there were many of our associates whose faith gave us much needed encouragement. And I like to feel that our own hard work and continuing development has in some measure justified that faith. I came to lead a band because I wanted so much to be part of the development of the thing I felt and loved most, the music of jazz. Today, I still feel that need more strongly than any other. And with the help of new musicians, new ideas, and new composers, I look forward enthusiastically to the future and the opportunities of productive experiment. Building on the rich jazz experience we've all shared, we're on our way, I'm sure, to creating a more mature modern music a music more expressive of the exciting, dynamic times 
in which we live. Public acceptance is slow and even slower when you're striving for the approval of anything new in music. We approach Leith Stevens, who was one of the first leaders and arranger-composers to foster jazz music over the air. Among his musical contributions were the brilliant scores for the motion pictures Destination Moon, The Wild One, Private Hell 36. Mr. Stevens has always had a fondness for jazz. We asked him his feeling on the current world of modern music in Kenton. He answered... Any discussion of contemporary music must give considerable space to the contribution of Stan Kenton in the field of jazz. It is true that a few men like Duke Ellington have always carried on the search for new harmonic values, new rhythms, new concepts. But it remained for the impact of Stan Kenton's deep belief in progressive jazz, as shown by the great performances of his then-new band in 1941, to set in motion a mass development toward a more important form of musical expression. This development, in many ways paced by Kenton's constant explorations, has momentum and the vitality to continue. Its explorations of the abstract, its experiments with polytonal counterpoint, and its continuing investigations of new styles of playing and new musical vocabulary may one day crystallize in a new jazz form so different from its beginnings that the parents will not recognize the relationship. When and if this happens, I hope there will be a Stan Kenton available to spark a new progression. For if music is to fulfill its function of speaking intimately and individually to each person who listens, then it must continue to change as the people change. The young, brilliant American composer and conductor Don Gillis, president of the Symphony Foundation of America, was also asked to comment on modern jazz in Kenton. Gillis, formerly producer of the NBC Symphony broadcast writes in the contemporary symphonic vein, and to his credit are ten symphonies, among them the Five and a Half and the Dance Symphony, an opera and several tone poems. Mr. Gillis said, A curious thing has happened in music over the last 50 years, a thing which has affected both the symphony and jazz all over the world, and particularly here in the United States. Jazz itself has been the birthright of improvisation with small instrumental groups, but in the development of jazz... The concept of the orchestral medium has enlarged from small ragtime bands to the present sound structure of the symphony orchestra. The curious thing we referred to relates to the consciousness of sound in music. Sound, of course, is the composite or blending of the various instruments and is achieved through orchestrations. And particularly since the advent of electronic sound through radio and jukeboxes, our ears have become more and more dependent on the sound element for enjoyment. The result has been the creation of new sounds and new ideas, the natural result of experimentation by eager and interested minds. And in the field of jazz writing, Stan Kenton's name is a bright and shining light. For with new concepts and daring progress, he has, in a sense, passed even the sonic barrier in the achievements that his arrangers have made in the creation of new and exciting sounds in music a la Canton. As Stravinsky was to the major symphony orchestras when he created the Firebird and the Rites of Spring, so Kenton has been to the contemporary age with his steady stream of innovation in expanding the range of sounds from the dance band. And whether or not these are permanent contributions in art, I don't know. I rather suspect that they are. But at the very least, his ideas are new tools 
which are proving invaluable to the creative minds in art and those minds which will follow. And when the long history of our music is written, there must be a chapter dedicated to the influence and contributions made by Stan Kenton. Kenton had a complaint about the word jazz and voiced it for the entire jazz profession. You know, the word jazz is not only a noun, it's an adjective, it's an adverb used in many different ways. Have you ever noticed, for instance, a gentleman walking down the street in a rather loud suit of clothes, maybe a necktie to go along with it, and someone on the sideline says, look at that jazzy suit. Have you ever seen a dance on a stage somehow that uh, didn't quite come off and the remarks are, that was a kind of a jazzy thing, wasn't it? Maybe it's an automobile going down the road with too many ornamental extras. Well, that could be jazzy, too. All sorts of things, from decorations to all sorts of descriptive things, can be included and used in connection with this word, jazzy. The thing I want to complain about is, it's this. You know, we're all pretty serious about this artistic expression that I believe is America's only cultural contribution to the rest of the world. I wonder how we can be so serious, as I say, and so concerned about a thing that sometimes is considered so jazzy. Kenton's manner of presentation has never failed to inspire enthusiasm in every audience, but his music will always remain controversial. To a musician, oft-repeated phrases soon grow sterile, and he seeks a new, exciting way to state his truths. For Stan Kenton, this constant search is a basic fact of his life. Look forward to many new things in music for this man. They'll be different, and each new era will provide conversation. You may not agree with his music, but credit him for constantly furnishing something new, fresh, and different. He believes in it. This is Frank Sinatra, and you might ask, why me to tell this story? I know Kenton. The story is true. I like jazz. All I have and enjoy today was given me by those that came before. My music would not be such without the music created in the past. Each man works and contributes in his own way, and all effort somehow is a part of the total gain for all. No one person or group of people can live happily without the help of others. Regardless of the differences of individual purpose, we are dependent upon each other. What I have stated so far is the philosophy that propels me, and without these things, I can see no reason for tomorrow. The National Broadcasting Company has presented The Kenton Era. Frank Sinatra was your host and narrator. This program came to you from New York, Hollywood, Washington, and overseas. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.